Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18 today, if you have your Bibles. And uh, there's quite a bit of background to get where we need to go. Um, I know that I talk fast already. Believe it or not, I have to slow myself down while I'm up here. And I have a lot of background. So if you'll just kind of hang on, we'll get there. And I'll try to talk slow, and I'll probably fail. But thank the Lord for his grace. Amen. All right. So 1 Kings 18. We have Elijah and Ahab. Uh, Elijah is a prophet of the Lord. Right out of the gate in chapter 17, Elijah comes to Ahab. Ahab is the king of Israel. He's the most wicked king. Um, If you could do wrong, he pretty much did it. He married the daughter of a pagan king. He brought in all of these pagan um, prophets. Uh, He sacrificed his sons. Um, as a sacrifice to, uh, to, to building, like again, just a bad, bad guy all the way around. And Ahab is approached by Elijah and Elijah says, uh, it will not rain until I come back and tell you that it will. And then poof, for three and a half years, Elijah goes into hiding. Uh, and you can read chapter uh, 17 if you want to see more of that. And uh, while he's praying one day, the Lord comes to Elijah and tells him, hey, go to Ahab and confront him. And today, I'm going to make it rain. Not like this. More this, you know. Three and a half years. They've been, uh, Israel at this point is in famine. Uh, There's a drought. It's brutal. So he approaches Ahab and Ahab calls him out and he says, that you, O troubler of Israel. And again, Elijah's having none of it. And he says, he issues a challenge. He said, meet me at Mount Carmel, bring your prophets of Baal and bring Israel with you. And we'll set out a challenge. We'll see who the real God is. So they go there and immediately Elijah confronts Israel with their sin. Verse 21, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Have you ever been in a situation where you're doing, maybe you're, you were a kid and you're doing something wrong and the person with you is doing wrong, but if you don't really talk about that it's wrong, it doesn't really feel wrong? This is, the, this is all of the nation of Israel, right? And Elijah just, just straight up says, no, this is wrong. Quiet. So he witnesses a challenge. He says, all right, to the prophets of Baal, how about this? We'll both build sacrifices But we won't light them. We won't actually burn them. But we'll call out to our gods to set them on fire. You call out to Baal, I'll call out to Yahweh. And whoever's God answers in fire, that's the one true God. So bring two bulls. Okay, there's 450 prophets of Baal. There's one prophet of God. The prophet of God says, y'all even pick the best bull and you go first. Okay, so they do it. The prophets of Baal are like, this is easy. They set it up. They get the altar set up. They put the bull on it. They begin limping around and talking and chanting and, you know, calling out, Baal, answer us. Baal, answer us. Answer us. And again, Elijah's sitting over here uh, with his second-rate bull in front of this broken-down altar. I just kind of, again, I have this idea that he's just like waiting, waiting. And for hours this goes on. And eventually, in one of the funniest episodes of Scripture, Elijah walks up and just starts to openly mock 
the prophets of Baal. And he says, go up now. No, sorry, I jumped ahead. He says, cry loud for he's a God. Cry loud. Either he's musing or he is relieving himself or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. So these people are dancing around and they're, oh, Baal, answer us. Baal, answer us. And he's going, you know what? Maybe he's, maybe, you know what? He's thinking really hard or he's went to the bathroom or he's on vacation. Maybe he's asleep. Call out to him, be louder. Come on, guys, you got this. You're doing so good. Keep going. So as is the, as is the custom of these Baal worshipers, they continue to cry out. They continue to cry out. They begin to cut themselves. And it says that blood was gushing from them. They continue to cry out and cry out and cry out. And scripture says very clearly, no one listened. No one paid attention. Well, I just had enough of it. So he gathers Israel there, and he goes there, and the first thing he has to do is he has to rebuild the altar. Twelve stones for the twelve tribes of Israel. He rebuilds it. He puts the wood in it. He cuts up the bull, and he puts on there. And then he does something different. He goes a step further. He builds a trench, or he digs a trench all the way around it. And he says, hey, go get four jars of water and pour on top. Now, three and a half years they've been in a drought. Baal is called the Lord of the rain and the dew. And for three and a half years, they've been in a drought. Water is a precious commodity. And he says, hey, take that water and pour on there. They do it. Do it again. Do it again. They pour so much water over this sacrifice that it fills this trench up. Also, I don't have to tell you, if you've ever tried to start a fire with wet wood, it's not very easy, right? So he says, listen, I've taken this second-rate bull. I've poured water on it. I've put Yahweh at every disadvantage. Every disadvantage. And then he prays. He prays for the Israel to know who God is. He prays for Israel to know that everything that Elijah has set up to this point was from God. And what happens? Fire falls down and consumes the sacrifice. It consumes the wood. It consumes the stones. It consumes the dust. And it consumes all the water. So let's paint this picture, okay? Over here, you've got a bloody mess of 450 prophets and a perfect sacrifice in the middle that is not burnt. Over here, you've got one prophet of God with a smoldering crater behind him. Verse 39, and when the people saw it, they fell to the ground and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. That's about as clear of an answer as you can get. And after that, he tells them, seize the prophets of Baal. Uh, they slaughter all 450 of them. And I, I, I have this in my mind, almost like an action movie, where, again, all these prophets of Baal have been slaughtered. And Elijah walks up to King Ahab and goes, go up, eat and drink. For there's a sound of the rushing of rain. That's so awesome. This moment, he goes, no, go ahead, eat and drink. Don't worry about whether people are going to have anything to eat or drink from now on because now is the sound of a rushing rain. And Ahab listens. So what happens? Does he go, and now we're going to go, and the pagan daughter of that king you married, we're going to go take care of her. These other prophets of these other gods, we're going to take care of them. No, what does he do? Verse 42, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down to the earth and put his face between his knees. This is a posture of prayer. It's a posture of humility. It's a posture of someone who, who, is, who is praying intently for something and he tells his servant, he goes, go look at the sea and tell me if you see anything. His servant goes and says, Elijah, I didn't see anything. Go again. Nothing. Go again. Nothing. Go again. Seven times. 
And finally, the servant comes back and goes, actually, there's a little cloud like a man's hand that's coming over the sea. So we see this incredible spectacle. We see this incredible um, demonstration of God's might and power that is like proof of who he is and proof that he is the one true God. And the first thing Elijah does is he goes up and he prays. But again, God had said, listen, all you've got to do is go confront Ahab and I will make it, I will make rainfall on the earth today. So Elijah knew that was true. Clearly Elijah had faith. He knew that was true. So why did he immediately go and pray for it again? Better yet, why did God not answer him immediately? Why did he have to pray seven times? We ask this question because we love, we love the spectacle, right? We love the spectacular. We love the bright lights. We watch the Super Bowl not for the game. We watch it because we want to see the commercials. Or we want to complain about the commercials. We, we watch it for the halftime show. Or we want to complain about the halftime show. Uh, we watch it for the fried cheese, the fried pickles, the fried, the fried, the fried, the fried, uh, all the food in the world, the little Smokies and the barbecue sauce. We watch it for all of that. We watch it to go hang out with our friends. We watch all this. We love the spectacle. If it were just a football game, most people wouldn't watch it. Our culture, we love spectacle. We love the, the grandiose. We love the big things. But here's what we've got to see. That far more often than not, God speaks in the quiet rather than in the spectacular. He speaks in those quiet moments. We can know a few things about Elijah because, uh, because of what he did. So this wasn't just a random like proclamation he put on Israel when he said it will not rain. Um, this wasn't something that Elijah was like, let me see, what can, I, what can I do to them? Or what can God do to them? What can I tell them God's going to do in order to really get them? No, Elijah knew God's word. Because in Deuteronomy chapter, or chapter 11, Moses tells them that unfaithfulness to God will lead to drought and famine. So it wasn't so much that, uh, that Elijah was just saying, you know, this, is, this sounds good. No, he was saying, hey, you've done this. This is the consequences of your actions. What's the punishment? Drought and famine. How did Elijah know that? Because he studied God's word and he spent time studying the law. How did he know to tell that to Ahab? It's because he prayerfully pursued the Lord and he prayerfully listened to the Lord. He was desperate for God. Again, the, the three and a half years he was in hiding, the Lord provided for him so much. He provided for him food, and he provided for him water, and he provided for him shelter. The Lord provided for him in all of these times. In our modern culture, we don't, we don't, we're not really desperate for many things. Sure, a lot, I mean, again, I don't, I don't want to, whatever you're going through, I don't want to diminish that. But overall, most of us aren't too desperate. In fact, we, we pursue safety and comfort and when we pursue safety and comfort, we tend to put our trust in things that are much easier and predictable. Things that require a lot less faith. Things that we don't have to necessarily think a lot about. Things that we, you know, things that we can sit there and go, oh, I can see why that works. Oh, I can see how this will work. We seek safety. Not only that, but we've gotten so used to seeking the spectacular that we only feel him in the spectacular. We only feel him in these big emotional moments. I was at a, a conference in college uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, in the Georgia Dome with 60,000 other people singing loud to the Lord, again, wrapped all the way. And it was unreal. I need to make very clear it was unreal. 
But that's what we seek out often. And it, honestly, the idea of just sitting still and listening and seeking that quiet time with the Lord sounds kind of boring. I can't, I can't sit there in the quiet or I'll just go to sleep. So because of that, we don't even try to listen because the culture offers us bright lights and this seems boring. We fall into this trap that bigger and brighter is better. And because of that, we don't seek guidance. We don't want to seek guidance in that moment. We treat God kind of like a life insurance policy. I'm going to invest little by little. I'm going to give little by little. Each week or each month, you know what? I'll, I'll go to church every Sunday, and, you know, unless the weather's good. Um, and I'll go and I'll do that. I'll, I'll go to church. And you know what? I'll give. I'll give and I'll serve. As long as it's not, you know, with the little scamps, they're a little crazy for me. But I'll serve if it's something I really want to do. But, you know, but I do serve. But I do serve. I do pay in also. Uh, I pay my tithes. Uh, I read my Bible, a chapter every day. Uh, well, I mean, you know, my friend posts a Facebook post and usually it has scripture on it and I read it. Uh, but I, I invest and I give all these things and I do all these things. And at the end of my life, I walk up and go, here's my investment. One ticket to heaven, please. And we wonder why we don't hear from the Lord. We wonder why we don't, when we pray, it feels like it, that it's quiet. So what if we struggle, struggle to hear from the Lord? What should we do? Well, if God does speak often in the quiet, it's pretty simple. In order to hear him, we have to slow down and we have to create silence around us. I say create very intentionally because we don't have to have silence. In our modern culture, we do not have to experience silence at all. And I'm guilty of it. If you ever see me at the store, there's chances are I have a set of headphones in. Could be listening to music, could be listening to a podcast, doesn't matter. Like, But we don't like silence. We don't like quiet. If I'm at my house cleaning up or I'm working on something, I have music playing, I have something playing. We don't like silence. And we don't have to have silence. In 1942, uh, C.S. Lewis posted this, or posted. See, yeah, there's our culture, right? Uh, coming out. Uh, he published the Screw Tape Letters. It is one of my favorite books, and it is one of the most convicting things other than God's Word that I've ever read. And to give you the context, Screw Tape is an elder demon. And this is fictitious, by the way. He's an elder demon, and he's writing to his nephew Wormwood, who is a tempter. And he's giving him advice on how to tempt his patient. That's the person that each demon is assigned to, to tempt him. And he starts, and Screwtape begins talking about a patient he had. This is in letter one, if you're interested. And he talks about how beneficial real life is to him. Real life. And he says, listen, one time my patient was sitting there who was, he was a very ardent atheist. And he was sitting there and he was reading his books. And I saw a train of thought that I didn't like the way it was going. And I could have just started arguing with him and going back and forth and, and pushing against it. But all those years of work would have, gone, would have gone down the drain. So here's what I did. I told him, hey, it's close to lunch. Aren't you hungry? Well, this is Screwtape saying this. The enemy, Screwtape always refers to God as the enemy. The enemy began to say something else to him. And we assume that he was saying, this is too important. This is too important. Focus on it. Focus on it. Focus on it. And Screwtape said, so all I said was, you know what? It is very important. Very important. Better to go get a bite to eat and come back with a full belly and a clear head. So the patient got up and walked outside. And here's where Screwtape picks up. He says, once he was in the street, the battle was won. 
I showed him a newsboy shouting at the midday paper and a number 73 bus going past. And before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had got into him an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come to a man's head when he is shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life was enough to show him that all of that sort of thing just couldn't be true. Fast forward 80 years, what does our real life look like? We can communicate with anyone at the tip of our fingers. We can look up anything at the tip of our fingers. We can look up any song. We can look up any video. We can watch not three, four, five channels, but we can watch hundreds of channels. That's not counting any of the other content that is available online. We can chat. We can find validation anywhere we want. We can do anything. We are even doing things called virtual reality where we completely blank out from our surroundings and go somewhere else. We don't have to sit in silence anymore. We don't have to experience silence anymore. We don't embrace it. The world teaches us not to. And Christ followers are too often guilty of not embracing it either. So here's what real life looks like to Christ followers oftentimes, okay? This is what it looks like. So we begin to assimilate to this culture of hurry, and of busyness and of overload. We begin to get used to that. That's what it begin, life begins to look like. And because of that, we diminish God's presence in our life. He's not as important as he once was. We don't have time for him. That's the thing we can cut. That's the thing we can downsize to accomplish what we need to accomplish. And we get more and more used to it. He becomes marginalized in our lives. That in turn, we begin to have this deteriorating relationship with God. We don't feel as 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 positive. We don't feel as peace with God as we once did. So what do we do? We begin to look elsewhere. What is culture? We've already adopted some of culture. What does culture begin to say that will give me fulfillment, that will give me happiness and joy? We begin to conform to that. And the more we conform to that, the more we get used to this, this life and this culture of busyness, hurry, and overload. And that cycle continues. We go right back to the top. We begin adopting it more. The Lord becomes more marginalized in our lives. And before we know it, the most that the difference between us and anyone else in the culture is maybe we don't cuss and we wear a cross necklace. We look just like everyone else. Corey Tinboom once said, If the devil can't make us bad, he'll make us busy. The most common thing I hear from people is, I don't have time. We're so busy. I don't have time. We're so busy. And then, and here's, here's the crazy part. Here's the crazy part. And by the way, when I preach a sermon or any of us preach a sermon, just know that the, one of the hardest parts of it is there's a big mirror you stare at for a week and you see all these qualities in yourself. So if I sound accusational, no, I've beat myself up all week over it too, right? So I'm speaking to the choir here. But we fall back on this idea and we assume that, you know what, I'm a good person though. I don't do what I used to, but I'm a good person. And even that definition of a good person is what I think is a good person. Again, God clearly states there's no one who's good, but I'm good in my own eyes and that's all that matters. We may not offer altars up to Baal anymore, but we definitely have altars in our modern culture. 
Altars like the altar of productivity. I need to, I need to make more money. I need to conquer that to-do list. I need to get my kids to every sport, to every band practice, to every extracurricular activity. If you're a student, I need to study. I need to study. I need to study. I need to try to time find or find time to hang out with friends. And you know what? And whatever's left, I, I, I sleep. I need to multitask. Sleep is for the weak. We have the altar of popularity. I need to know the right people. Better yet, better yet, I need to know the impressive people. And even more than that, I need to become one of the impressive people that people need to know. The altar of cultural acceptance. Now, before you immediately go, mm, <laughs> I'm not like culture. Don't worry. This, those other two, those might have stung a little bit, but not this one. I'm not talking about culture of CNN versus Fox News, Democrat versus Republican, whatever you want to say. I'm talking about the people who surround you who you want to be accepted by. Those people that you see that you want to be accepted by. That's the culture that surrounds you. I need to value what they value. I need to spend time doing what they spend time doing. I need to say and do whatever I need to for them to go, they're our people. And then we sprinkle a little bit of Christianity on it and go, that's good. I'm a good person. And if we were honest, if we're honest, it would take fire from heaven to prove to us that those things aren't worth pursuing. In Jesus' time, the ones who people looked at and thought, oh, they're the ones. They're the ones. We're the religious leaders. And Jesus spoke very clearly about what, what it looked like to pray. Matthew 6, 5 and 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. We want freedom and purpose and contentment and peace that God offers, but we'll never, ever, ever find it apart from spending quiet, purposeful, intentional time with him. You see, Jesus didn't, Jesus modeled this for us. He didn't just pray in front of the masses. He didn't just pray around, uh, around his followers. In fact, Jesus would have very busy days of healing and of teaching and uh, would honestly neglect sleep before he would not spend time, in, spend time in prayer. So what if we take time away from our busyness? What if we go into the quiet? What if we do all of these things, but our prayers still aren't answered? What do we do? Well, we've got to understand that God blesses sincerity and persistence. Sincerity and persistence. Again, it's that life insurance policy. We often look as God is distant. He's way over there, and at the end of my life, that's when I'll meet him. That's when I'll, that's when I'll do everything I need to. But listen, God, God is present 
God is present. If you're a believer, God dwells in you through the Holy Spirit. God is ever present. It's not about this spiritual scorecard that you check off and go, okay, we're good. Everything's wonderful. Everything's great. This is what we need to do. And I've done everything. No, he wants a relationship with you. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to speak to you daily. He wants to bless you and love you. And he wants to give you what you need daily, every day. We often call it, uh, in modern day, we, we say more about our quiet time. When I was younger, it was our devotions, right? Well, I've got to do my devotions. Well, there's one thing that we can't get away from, and that's devotion requires time. If we're going to sit there and say, I'm a follower of Christ, I'm a follower of Jesus, I love the Lord, it requires time. It requires time alone, time in his word, time praying to him, time listening for him. Because what we do is we trust God ultimately, right? We trust him ultimately. Yeah, 100%. I trust I'm going to heaven. I gave my life to Christ. I trust him ultimately. But do we trust him immediately? Do we trust him with today, with the next moment, with the decision right now, with the thing we're dealing with, with the thing we're struggling with? Do we struggle? Do we actually say, Lord, give me guidance. Tell me what I need to do. Do our kids see us struggle? Do our kids see us give those things to the Lord? Do they see us pray? Do they see us reading our Bible? Do they see us uh, um, struggling with things and giving those things to the Lord? Do our coworkers, do our families? You see, we have a commitment problem. And it's this defense mechanism. It's this defense mechanism that we often pick up because we say, well, I don't, I don't want to be disappointed. What if I pray and God doesn't answer when I want him to or the way I want him to? I don't want to be disappointed. I don't want to be patient. What if his timing isn't my own? What if it takes longer? We want Amazon Prime prayer two days or less, right? Right? You go through it, no, prime, oh, this looks really prime. Nope, four days, please. No, we want it immediately. We want it now. So here's what we end up doing. We pray vaguely enough so that we can say and feel good about saying, I prayed about it, but not specific enough that it warrants expectation from the Lord. We pray vaguely enough to where we don't even have to have faith in it. But here's the thing, a prayer without faith not only lacks faith, it lacks sincerity. It lacks vulnerability. We don't want to be vulnerable. Bow down on my knees, pray intent, go by myself and spend time in Whew. Maybe it's prideful. Maybe it's fear. Let's give the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it's not just, I don't bow down to anyone. I'll do things myself. Or maybe it really is, man, but Blake, what if, what if I begin to, my faith is shaken because of this? Well, listen, we have to recover an understanding of the way God works and the way he is at work. Not just in the final promise, not just looking forward, but also how he's working in the acts of persistence along the way. Abraham was promised to become a great nation. He never saw it before death. Moses was promised to lead them to the promised land. He never stepped foot in it. Maybe, the, maybe the, we believe in the promises, but 
We don't pray too specifically because it's easier. It's more comfortable that way. Matthew chapter 7, 7 and 8 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now, uh, I've not had an English class in about 15 years, so bear with me on this. But we do not have a comparable verb tense to what this says in English, as they did in the Greek. In the Greek, what it insinuates is not only an action that is happening in the present, but an action that will continue to happen. It's happening now. It will happen in the future. It's a continual action. So we could translate it closer to keep on knocking, keep on seeking, keep on asking, continue, continue praying, continue going to the Lord for these things. You see, we have these God-given desires within us. We want peace and we want fulfillment and we want all of these different things. But the only way God-given desires can be filled is through a God-given means. And we'll never, ever find that means apart from spending time with him through prayer and through persistence. James 15, uh, he calls back to Elijah and he, he commends him. He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, here's the thing we have to understand. Here's all all of this. Uh, Anything that we talk about, anything that we come up here and say, it requires faith. You will never have all the answers. You will never understand fully. It requires faith. We want to hang on to, to, the, to the trunk of the tree and stand right here on the branch and go, yep, it'll hold me out there. But it requires us to step out. It requires us to trust that he is who he says he is. We need to trust that God is working in every circumstance. We need to trust that he keeps his promise and that he does ultimately what is best for us. Jesus talked about this in Luke chapter 18. And this is a unique parable that Jesus tells because typically Jesus would tell the parable and then give the lesson after. But out of the gate, he tells them what it's for. He says, and he, it says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and to not lose heart. So prayer and persistence. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So, this man fears neither God nor this judge fears neither God nor man. He's not operating off a sense of morality. He's not operating off a sense of owing someone or common decency or uh, or, or anything. This this dude has the easiest job in the world. He doesn't have to do anything. You can't recall him. He has no skin in the game. There's nothing. He couldn't care less. And yet, because she was persistent, 
he finally granted her what she wanted. And you say, so that's what God does. I pray enough till I annoy him and he just to get rid of me. No, 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 no. Jesus continues. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. We love that verse. We love that. Yes, the Lord will answer our prayers. And then there's an indictment. There's a punch to the gut. In the second half of eight, Jesus says, nevertheless, again, this is about prayer and persistence. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find anyone who's continued on? Who's continued to pray? Who's continued to to consistently go into the quiet and to pray back to him? Again, Elijah knew it would rain. God had told him it would rain. But he prayed, go look, seven times, seven times. When we lower our expectations of God so that we won't be disappointed, we won't be vulnerable, we won't be, have to be patient, we end up turning God into something that is less powerful, less good, less giving, and less capable than who he actually is. This is the same God who called fire down to burn the offering. This is the same God who created the world just by speaking it into existence. And it's the same God who sent his son so that his son could die for our sins and we could be reunited with him. It's the same God, but we won't pray super intentionally because I don't want to be disappointed. I'm going to ask Chris to go ahead and come up and... I, I, I want to be very transparent with you and very, very honest. Uh, one of the biggest temptations for me as a pastor is to do things on my own and to figure things out on myself, by myself. And there have been times where I've gone, this is great, this works, this, man, everything's on paper and I've done every bit of it and I've not brought it to the Lord once as even something we should do or as if it were the right direction. And I don't say this to, to brag on myself because I, I, I promise I have, if you don't know me very well, um, come talk to me. I'll tell you some flaws that'll bring me back down to earth if that's what you need. I, I don't have a lot to hide. But recently, probably in the last month, month and a half or so, uh, I, I've had to commit myself to, to spending intentional time with the Lord. Now, I would read my Bible in the mornings and I would go through and I would, not, you know, I would make notes and I would highlight it and I would do all this and it was good. But I got very convicted recently about how is it changing you? I don't enjoy, um, I don't really enjoy reading, like just taking a book and opening it and reading it. It's, it's not something I love doing. But as, as your pastor, I felt... I was like, Lord, I just, I need to learn more. I don't have an extensive amount of knowledge. I'm, I'm 34. I don't have a, a ton of life experience to offer. So God, I need to read other people. I need to read these. I need to read books. I need to spend more time in your word. I need to be more sensitive to what you're saying to me. I need to be more sensitive to you and more sensitive to your spirit's leading. So in the mornings, I have an alarm that goes off at 8 a.m. And in all caps, it just says, get to work. And within 10 minutes or so, I've got to be in my office. I might be talking to our staff members. I might be taking care of a problem, doing something. Um, But within 10 minutes, I I make it a point to be in my office and to be at the little desk on the other side of my desk or on the other side of my office to read. 
and to spend time in God's word. And when I inevitably start to feel that hurry of you've got a lot to do, the to-do list is stacked up, you've got a lot to do, you've got a lot to do, I have to sit there and I have to stop, take a deep breath and say, Lord, give me the patience. Help everything else get done. All that, everything else will get done. But Lord, give me the patience in this moment. And this incredible thing has happened. He's done that. He's done that for me, for even me. You see, we think if we had more time, we'd do it. No, you wouldn't. We'd find ways to fill it with other junk. We don't need more time. We don't need more, you know, more time to fill it in, to do something else. Maybe God never intended us to be so chaotically busy we couldn't sit still and be quiet and listen for him. Maybe he never intended us to just bring our Bibles on Sunday mornings and open up or just to read a post that we see on Facebook. It's the craziest thing. Maybe when God talked about the importance of his word, he meant it. Maybe when Jesus said, go into your room, close the door and pray in secret, maybe he meant it. It's very clear. We're not supposed to look like the culture we're surrounded by. We're supposed to look like Jesus. And Jesus took the time. Jesus was busy. Jesus took time with people. He took time to teach, but he also took time to spend with his father to study the word. So today, whether you're a Christ follower, whether you're not, if you're not, listen, I, I, I encourage you. giving your life to Christ offers all those things. And I can tell you, the more time we spend in his word and the more time we spend on our knees in prayer, the more vivid God becomes to us. The more we see him working in these situations as we pray and we continue to pray and as we pray for for spouses who don't know the Lord and as we pray for prodigal kids and as we pray for our coworkers and as we pray for all of that, We begin seeing where God is working in their hearts. We begin seeing where God is working in the world. We begin seeing the opportunities that he's given us. We love to pray for people who are lost, but how often do we pray, God, give me the opportunity to speak. Give me the opportunity for you to work through me. God, I don't know a lot about God's word. I may not know, I may not can quote every verse of scripture, but God, I also know you're faithful to speak through me. If I just give you the permission to, if I just believe you will, you'll speak through me. I can be that encourager. I don't have a, you know, we, we let our pride get in our way. I don't, what, what do we have to be prideful about? Anything I have in my life that I have pride in is only because God was the one who gave it to me. I've done nothing to deserve it. And I'm so grateful that he is as gracious with me as he is. So if you're not a Christ follower, I encourage you to pursue that. If you're not ready today, listen, I will be praying for you that God will continue to speak to you. Maybe you've been a Christ follower all your life and you've lost that fire within you. You've lost that that, that willingness to pray. Maybe you say, Blake, I pray at meals. I pray when, you know, when, when something bad happens to me, that's all I do. Listen, I'm, you're, you're in a lot of, that's the way most people are. But what if we actually began praying purposefully? What if we began to be persistent in our prayer for our, for our community, for our lost loved ones, for our spouses, for our kids, for our church, 
What if we did that? What if as a church, we were not known as a church who gives, but we were known as a church who prays, a church who spends time in God's word, who gives ourselves away to others because we just, all we do is take the opportunities that God gives us. So today, I wanna take just a minute. We're just gonna take a minute to be quiet. Just to be quiet and just listen to the Lord and listen for him. If you wanna to come to the front and pray, feel free to do that. Maybe, you wanna, maybe, maybe you're growing in your faith immensely and you just wanna to come to the front and say, Lord, I'm grateful for you, thank you. Maybe you're not a Christ follower. Maybe you're going through a difficult time. Maybe you're fighting against the urge to avoid what you would perceive as disappointment in your prayer life. I ask you to come too. So as we sit here for just a minute and then Chris is gonna sing, I wanna just challenge you. Are you persistent? Do you pray big prayers? Do you pray, do you pray that God do things that only he can do? Lord, teach us to trust you in the immediate. God, forgive us for for having a distant faith. God, forgive us for praying safely and vaguely. Lord, you are who you say you are. You're the creator. And God, we, we live in a world that is desperate for fulfillment and for purpose and for meaning, for something, for things that, that the world can't offer. Lord, may we, may we find them only in you. God, give us persistence. God, may we see you working in, in every situation. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the grace that you give me, that you give all of us. Lord, forgive me for the times that I've, I've prayed safe prayers. Forgive me the times that, for the times that I have I've not prayed because I've, I've feared of what might happen. Lord, make us persistent. Lord, give us an eye for what's coming, not for, for what's in the moment, Lord. Give us, an, give us a heart for your kingdom. Give us a heart for, for one day being face to face with you and let that, let that be what we pursue, not, not the things of this world. I see things in your name. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.